You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Grab your Bible or your Bible app and let's go to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 is where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible, there are stacks of Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. We'd love to give you one. It's a gift with no strings attached, so you can grab one now or on your way out today at the end of the worship service. And if you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? We're going to jump right in because we've got a lot to cover today. We're going to look at Revelation 6 and 7. I'm going to read the first eight verses of chapter 6 to get us started. Now, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like, Thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And his rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And his rider had a pair of scales in his hand. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. As strange as it is, this is... The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So we're in this study of the book of Revelation, the final and most fascinating book of the Bible. And we're in this passage today where we meet these sinister figures, sometimes referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now I've got to tell you, we're at that point in Revelation where typically readers stop reading and preachers stop preaching. Like This is the point where we usually just call it quits because the work of interpretation becomes much more demanding and, as we will see today, the work of living out the interpretation also becomes much more demanding. Now, as I just read that passage, who knows what kind of images were going through your mind. The four horsemen, maybe that takes you back to your, your wrestling days, if you remember watching wrestling, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Some of you are smiling. It's okay. This is a safe place. I'm not going to judge you. Others of you are thinking about some classic westerns. You know, like Pale Rider, Clint Eastwood's big hit in the 80s, highest grossing western from the 80s. It gets its name from this passage. One of my favorite westerns of all times quotes this passage, Tombstone. If you've seen the movie Tombstone at the very beginning when we meet that lightning fast gunslinger, Johnny Ringo. Johnny Ringo quotes our passage, Behold the Pale Horse. Now, Johnny's knowledge of the Bible is not as good as he wants you to think because he gets the name of the book wrong. He calls it Revelations. And hopefully by now we've learned that this is the book of Revelation, singular, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what that means is every passage we come to, no matter how complex it might seem, we need to ask the same basic question. We need to ask, what does this passage reveal about Jesus Christ? Because after all, the name of the book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. 
So let's think our way back into the text to the point where we had to hit the pause button last week. John, the writer of Revelation, political troublemaker, prisoner on the island prison of Patmos, he received a vision. A door is opened in front of him into another dimension, the heavenly dimension. And he sees the control center of the universe. He sees the throne of all thrones. And there seated on the throne is not Caesar like Rome promulgated. No, it's not Caesar, it's the creator. The Lord God Almighty. He is seated on the throne in control of all things. And in his right hand is a scroll. And that scroll is sealed with seven seals. And no one can open it. That scroll represents the plan of God, the destiny of humanity and of all of creation. Who could, who could open a scroll like that? No one except one. There is one, the lion lamb. Jesus, the one who conquers, who is victorious by being slain. He alone is worthy to open the scroll. In our passage today, in chapters 6 and 7, Jesus is going to break those seals one by one. And with the breaking of each seal, something will happen. Now, like last week, this is a busy passage. Lots going on here. And I don't want us to get lost in the forest. Okay? I don't want us to get looking at the trees and forget what's going on here. So let's get the big idea up front, just like we did last week. So here's the big idea of this passage. And it relates to what we learned last week. Last week, chapters 4 and 5, it was all about what is true in heaven and how it must become true on earth. So we got a glimpse of the heavenly throne room. We saw God, the almighty God, the creator of the universe, seated on the throne in heaven. And what is true in heaven must become true on earth eventually. Now, today in chapters 6 and 7, we're going to learn that God's kingdom will come to earth through many tribulations. Here's an interesting fact for you. This passage that we're studying today contains Revelation's only reference to the great tribulation. Only one. And this is another one of those phrases, sort of like the end times, that is commonly misunderstood. Princeton University Press has a series of little books that focuses on the lives of great religious texts. So each volume focuses on a book, traces its history, its interpretation, and one of these is on the book of Revelation. And in that book, there's a fascinating chapter that the author titles the rapture horror culture or the rapture horror genre now let me show you some memorabilia from this kind of rapture horror genre this started back around the year 1970 actually 1969 look at that look at that hair would you any of you have hair like that in the 60s again it's a safe place we're not going to judge you you can admit it so the song you heard this morning right before worship started was a remake of a song that came out in 1969 by this man, Larry Norman, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Maybe you remember that song. 
it painted the picture of a, of a post-rapture world. Rapture's happened, God's people gone, and then this just terrible time of tribulation that happens after it. Well, then within a few years, 1972-73, that post-rapture world hits the big screen for the first time in this film called A Thief in the Night. Now, the movie poster alone will haunt your dreams, won't it? I mean, look at that thing. Patty, she's a young, newly married woman, and her husband is raptured away, he's gone. And she's left in this now terrible time of trial and tribulation. And the whole world is just full of evil, and the evil is kind of summed up in this one world government called Unite. Now, fast forward to the 90s. In the 90s, we had the publication of the Left Behind series, one book that turned into 16 books. And then in the year 2000, it too went to the big screen, starring Kirk Cameron. 14 years later, 2014, Nicolas Cage stars in the remake. Now Nicolas Cage is he's no longer a prisoner on Con Air. Now he's the pilot. He's flying. But here's the common denominator in all of these. They all have the same basic scenes. Planes flying and then the pilot disappears. Cars driving and they crash into each other because the drivers disappear. One person here and then they're gone. And this time of terrible tribulation and trial begins. Now here's the problem. I know that books and movies like this have been quite literally scaring the hell out of people for a long time. And probably the authors and people who've made these movies, they've made a lot of money. But here's the problem. All of this is inconsistent with the teaching of Scripture. Now, I know that makes some of you squirm. Because if your primary sources have been this rapture horror genre, then what I'm saying is going to make you uncomfortable. But hang with me. Bear in mind that we have to get our theology, our understanding of God and His world, from Scripture, not pop culture. It might surprise you to learn that not once does the book of Revelation refer to a rapture of the church? Not once. Only once does it refer to the great tribulation. And as we will see today, the great tribulation is now. It's another way of referring to the entirety of the church age. The end times that started with the death and resurrection of Jesus and will continue until the day of his return. Let's get into the details of the passage. You'll see what I mean. As we look at this text, we're going to first of all see these four writers. And we're going to learn something from them about God's plan for the world and how his plan, though it is a good one, how it involves suffering. Look at the text. The divine plan of suffering. Start in verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. 
Let me just go ahead and tell you up front what all four of these writers stand for. The four writers, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, they stand for various shades of suffering that we will encounter now and all the way up until the return of Christ. Various shades of suffering that will characterize the entirety of the church age. The first writer stands for spiritual warfare. The rider on the white horse. How do we know that? Well, because at the end of Revelation, Jesus himself is on a white horse. He looks a lot like this rider. See, this rider has the appearance of truth and purity and beauty. But it's a ploy. It's a work of deception. It's a trick. It's a trap. This rider stands for spiritual deception, spiritual Warfare. In our day, the white rider outside the church, he sounds like this. Oh, there are many paths. There are many paths up the same mountain. You just got to find what works for you. See, truth is a beautiful thing. What's true for you? It might not be true for me. There are many paths. It's the white rider. Inside the church, the white rider is incomplete with his teaching about Jesus. Oh, Jesus was a good man. Jesus had some insightful teaching. It's the white rider. Spiritual warfare, spiritual deception. And the second rider, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. This one's very clear. It's obvious. This one stands for physical violence. Red, color of blood. He's taking peace. He has a great sword. Now listen, notice one more thing here before we get into the red rider. Look at, look at what's happening. He opened the scroll. Who's the he? Let's back it up. Look at it again. Now I watched when the Lamb, that's the heat, the Lamb opened the seven seals. The Lamb is opening this second seal. So don't lose sight of the fact that somehow, some way, even though it's incredibly mysterious to us, suffering is being bent, is being used for God's good purposes. Somehow these riders, they can be riding the earth, and in all of it, Jesus himself has a good plan because he's the one who breaks the seals. With the death and resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom of God is coming to earth. Remember the previous chapters. What is true in heaven must become true in earth. And because the kingdom of God is coming to earth, there is an uprising of evil. It's like in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's not until Aslan, the great lion, it's not until he is on the move that the white witch assembles her army. The inbreaking of the kingdom of God incites this uprising of evil, and that's what all of these riders are symbolizing. So the second one, the red rider who's bringing physical violence to the earth, he's doing everything he can to turn nation against nation. He's doing everything he can to turn brother and sister against each other. Humanity fighting where the gospel brings peace. This uprising of evil 
It seeks to bring war to the world and rage. And why is it that throughout our history we have so much violence, so much anger, so much rage? Why is it that over the last 18 months especially we've had so much rage in our culture over the issues of racism and the pandemic, over politics? It's the Red Rider coming after you. Resist him. The gospel brings peace between God and humanity. The gospel brings peace between us. But the Red Rider doesn't want peace. He wants war. He wants rage in your heart and in mine. Fight him. Resist him. There's a third. The third rider represents famine and economic oppression. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. In the, in the ancient world, a pair of scales represented a time of famine, a time when food had to be rationed, it had to be weighed. Now, based on what we've learned about the state of Christians at the time that John wrote, we know that if a famine hit, they would have been hit the hardest. Because remember that in the first century world, religious practices, social embrace, and economic security, it was all intertwined. See, if Christians were not worshiping the emperor, if they were not worshiping the local gods, then they were outcasts, they were ostracized, they were blacklisted. They didn't have access to the basic commodities of life they needed. So if a time of famine hit, they were truly in trouble. And yet, these Christians were not compromising. No matter what happened around them, no matter how bad the economy looked, they were not compromising. There's a message for us there. The black rider is a time of famine and a time of economic oppression. And then finally, plague and physical death in the pale rider. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. This rider has a name. Death. Death is personified. It's riding throughout the earth, gathering the corpses, taking them to the place of the dead. And when you hear that, and when you think about these other writers, I have to draw your attention back to the fact that it is the Lamb who breaks the seals. Though it is mysterious to us, there must be a good plan in all of this somehow. Because we know the Lamb. He is the one who was slain for us. He is the one who laid down his life for us, so he must be good. He must be generous and gracious, and he breaks these seals. The inbreaking of the kingdom of God, it causes an uprising of evil. We don't always understand the evil. We don't always see the good in it. But there must be some good. And yet we hear that and still we have questions, don't we? Don't you find yourself wondering, but how, God? Especially those of us who have lived through long seasons of suffering, 
long times of trial and tribulation, we ask questions, don't we? Why, God? Why me? How long, God? If you find yourself asking those questions, I want you to know you're not alone. You're not alone. Those same questions are asked in heaven. We learn that with the breaking of the fifth seal. The four seals that we just studied tell us something about the divine plan of suffering. The fifth seal, in it we find a response to suffering. Listen to this. When he opened the fifth seal, Jesus, the Lamb, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true How long? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So the first four seals, these four horsemen, They give us a picture of the various shades of suffering that exist now, that existed in John's day and will exist all the way up until the return of Jesus. The pain of the world. With the fifth seal, we hear a response from heaven. We see the souls of those who have been slain. These are the souls of Christians, our brothers and sisters. These are those that the pale rider has already come for. He's claimed their bodies, but they're okay. In fact, they're better than okay. They're in the presence of God in heaven. They're under the altar, meaning that they are present with God and they are protected by Him. But they're crying out. They're saying something. They're crying out, How long, O Lord? It's the cry we hear again and again in the book of Psalms. How long, O Lord? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood? See, the Bible promises that one day Jesus will return and he will judge all evil. It promises that one day he will return as the avenger, as the punisher of evil. Now that concept, it's tough for some of us to swallow. We find it repulsive. We struggle to see how a loving God, a God who loves the world, could return to judge the world. So let me give you a, let me give you a real life example that might help you see how these two ideas of love and judgment, how they actually fit together. 15 years ago, true story, 15 years ago, there was a gunman who shot 10 people in an Amish community in Pennsylvania. Five of them died. They were all children. Fifteen years ago, next month, this happened. Story made headlines, of course. But it was primarily the response of the Amish community that made the headlines. In fact, it later became a book called Amish Grace. Now, that's the true story. Let me put a little imaginary twist on it for you. Let's say that the gunman, he shot and killed those five children. What happened in real life is he shot himself. But let's put this twist on it. He shot himself... He tried to kill himself, but he didn't die. Somehow he lives through it. 
And so then he is tried and he gets off. Somehow, something happens, he gets off. There was five kids dead, there's eyewitnesses, and somehow still this guy gets off. If that would have happened, it still would have been the talk of our country, but what would people have said then? We would have shouted out, our justice system is broken, right? Every one of us would have said, this is terribly wrong. Our justice system is broken. This man's evil is being treated as good. Because deep down we know, deep down we know that evil can't be treated as good. It's terribly unjust when that happens. The Bible teaches us that God is love. That he loves his children and he loves his creation and therefore he hates evil. He is wrathful toward evil and all things that seek to destroy the life, the creation that he made. And one day Jesus will return to punish all evil, to bring justice to the world. The justice that in our own hearts we all seek. So the souls of these fallen believers in heaven, they are crying out for that future day. How long, O Lord, before you will judge and avenge our blood? How long before you will set things right? And what were the words that they heard? To them and to us, God says, rest. Rest and trust. Rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Rest and trust and know that there is more suffering to come. That our brothers and sisters in Christ, their lives will be taken. And that somehow in all of this, the kingdom of God is breaking in. The gospel is going to the nations. That somehow in all of this, God has a good purpose. But also knowing that one day, Jesus will return. And that's what we see in the sixth seal. In the sixth seal, we learn finally of the end of suffering. The final judgment. Look at this. When he opened the sixth seal, he, the Lamb, Jesus, again, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? The day... The day that those souls in heaven under the altar, the day they prayed for, cried for, are praying for, are crying for, that day will come. Jesus will return to bring justice, the end of evil, 
the end of all suffering. And look at the way it was described here. All the end of the world movies get it wrong. The end will not come by a meteor hitting the earth. The language that's used here in Revelation is the language of cosmic collapse. The end will come when God finally says, okay, fine, you want to be your own God? You want to go your own way? Fine, I'll step back. I'll take my hand off the cosmos and let's see if you can run things. And we can't. And so creation itself collapses. It's a cosmic meltdown. Now this will not be the end of creation full stop. This cosmic meltdown will be a purging, a ridding of sin and suffering and evil and death. It will be a death and resurrection. We'll get to that later in the book of Revelation. But what about us? What about God's people? Will we be spared from this day? Do we need to fear the day of, the day of wrath? This is where chapter 7 comes in. Hang with me on this. Let me see your eyeballs. If you've lost, you come back. There were seven seals. Remember, we've only seen six. So at the end of chapter 6, we got seal number 6. The final seal doesn't come until chapter 8. We're not even going to get there today. In between is a parenthesis, chapter 7, in which God reminds his people of his abiding presence with us during this time of great tribulation, the entire church age, and he reminds us that we will be protected from the final judgment. Read chapter 7 later. We don't have time to get into all the details today, but in chapter 7 you will see 144,000 people that are sealed, marked as belonging to God. Numbers are symbolic. We know this already. 144,000. 12 times 12 times 1,000. We saw the numbers 12 last week. In Revelation, when they're added together or multiplied, it represents God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles of Jesus. Here, they're multiplied and multiplied by a thousand to give us a picture of the countlessness of the Christians who will be saved, who will be spared from the final judgment. And in chapter 7, the way the way that these 144,000 are broken down and grouped is it's, it's as if they're an army. We are the soldier servants of the lion lamb. We follow him. We conquer. We are victorious. Not by bearing arms. By bearing witness to the lamb. To the one who was slain. You see, on this day of final judgment, it doesn't matter how powerful you are. It doesn't matter. Your influence, your prestige, your money, your power, they will get you nowhere. Because where are the powerful people on the day of judgment? Look at the text. The kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich and the powerful, they're cowering in a cave. All the people that we look to thinking, surely these will be the ones who will save us. Our politicians, our celebrities, they're cowering in the cave. They're begging the mountain to crash down around them so that maybe, maybe they will be spared. 
from the wrath of the Lamb. Say, on a day like this, who can stand? God's people can stand. God's true people will stand. Those who have humbled ourselves, who in faith have followed the Lamb, we have no reason to fear this day of wrath. I want to come back in closing to the big idea. I don't want you to forget it. The big idea of the chapters before this, what is true in heaven must become true on earth. God's kingdom is coming. It's coming right now. What is true in heaven, the throne, it must become true on earth. But what chapters 6 and 7 reveal about Jesus, about his kingdom, is that the kingdom will come to earth through many tribulations. Friends, this matters. It matters deeply. Let me show you how in closing. The Great Tribulation is not some future period from which we are promised an escape hatch. I don't care what pop culture says. And if you live your life with that idea in your mind, you will not take the mission seriously and you will crumble under suffering. See, when we understand that we're in the Great Tribulation now, it actually prepares us to fulfill the Great Commission. Here's what I mean. If your hope is that one day you're going to escape from this world, you're going to be raptured out of here before things get really bad, then why do any real work in this world? Why do anything tangible? Why work for the good of your community? Why cultivate the earth? Why not just sit around and wait on that rapture to happen? You will not take the mission seriously. You will not care about the hurting people around you in the same way as if you see that we're in that great tribulation right now. We're called to make a difference right now. The hope is not to get out of here. The hope is that the kingdom is coming here. But also see that you will crumble under suffering. If you believe the great tribulation is some future period only and we're going to get raptured out of here, we get an escape hatch then when you suffer in this life, you will collapse because you will begin to question God. You will say, God, I, I thought you promised me I was going to get out of here before things get bad. And I look around and I see the four riders. I see rage and violence and death. And look at what's happening in my family. God, where are you? Are you a liar? Did you forget me? But you see, the real promise of God's word is not that we will be saved, spared from tribulation, but that we will be brought through it. This is something Christianity can give you that no other world religion can. No world religion can promise you a life without suffering. Not one. Christianity is the only one that can promise you true purpose in your suffering. The presence of a loving God in your suffering. He is somehow purifying you, shaping you, molding you, taking the gospel to the nations through the things that are happening in you. And not only that, but one day, a final end to all suffering, the day of Christ's return.
The promise of Revelation is not that we will be saved from tribulation, but that we will be saved through it. God is doing so right now in your life and in mine. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is sometimes tough to hear. Honestly, we would rather just avoid suffering altogether. But then we are reminded of the cross. The great mystery of how Jesus, you are victorious as you lay down your life. You conquer as you are crucified. The way of suffering it is the way of victory. My prayer this morning, God, is that those of us who are going through tough times, and maybe we have questioned you, because maybe we've had a faulty premise. Maybe we've thought that we did have an escape hatch, a way out, a suffering-free, pain-free life. But Lord, we see that's, that's just not what your word teaches us. So help us in our times of trial and tribulation to feel your presence, to trust in your goodness. Help us to suffer well, to suffer in such a way that the gospel goes forth with great power. But at the same time, it's right for us to long for that day, Lord Jesus, when you will return. When you will bring justice to the world. When all evil and sin and suffering will be destroyed forever. It's right for us to long for that day. Lord Jesus, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate communion this morning, we remember... We remember your sacrifice for us. You laid down your life. You died for me, for all of us, for all of us who are your people. You gave it all and you conquered death, victorious. We remember your sacrifice. We remember your victory. We ask you, Lord Jesus, to nourish us today as we celebrate communion in a few moments. Give us everything we need to live for you now, in this present age, in the end times, in the great tribulation. We need you, Jesus. We can't do it without you. So nourish us now and keep us focused on that day of your return. And you will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more cancer. No more funerals. No more suffering. Until that day we have a mission. 
empower us for it. Empower us for it. We give her all to you. In Jesus' name.